0: Welcome to Is This Democracy?, the podcast where we discuss the ongoing conflict over how much democracy and for whom there should be in America. My name is Thomas Zimmer. I'm a historian at Georgetown University.
1: I'm Lily Mason. I'm a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute.
2: And I'm Perry Bacon. I'm a columnist of the Washington Post.
0: All right. We are doing something a little bit different today. We're doing our first ever Q&A. We ask you to send in questions questions you would like us to tackle. And you delivered. We received a great batch of of questions, um, topics, way too many to answer in one episode. We selected a few. Some we deliberately avoided because we are already planning to devote a full episode to them in in the near future. And, And some were really interesting, but we just had to make the cut somewhere. So we really, really appreciate the time and effort you all put into sending us these questions. really appreciate it. And if we don't get to your question today, I hope you won't hold it against us. I'm sure there will be more such opportunities in the future. I definitely enjoy these Q&A thingies. Um, it, it's nice to hear from um, the people who are listening to us and, and hear what, what you are thinking and, and what is on your minds. One more disclaimer before we get into it. We are very deliberately not going to go too deep on any one particular question. Some of these questions touch on very, very big topics. Um Consider this our first reaction, maybe more of a first approximation, an appetizer, rather than necessarily a fully developed answer. We will tackle many of these, if not all of these issues, again, in the future, and then devote proper time, maybe even full episodes to them. Um, But there's something to be said, I think, for this kind of more focused, more concise approach. We'll be giving ourselves roughly 10 minutes um, for each question, and we'll do our best to offer something valuable in such a um, restricted amount of time. All right. Let's get into the questions.
2: So we'll first start with a question from Alex. And her question is, how did you find each other? How did you decide to make the podcast happen? I'll start with you, Thomas.
0: Okay, so we, we will allow ourselves this one somewhat self-indulgent question or, or answer. Um, I'll just I'll just recap the timeline real quick, because this came together really quickly right before the midterms. Um, I think perry you and i had a meeting in we met in dc for coffee had a meeting that sounds very formal we met for coffee <laughs> on october 6th and i mean i don't think we had any intention going in that we would like start a podcast or anything and then at some point in the conversation you just said we should you just we just we should just do a podcast and i said oh awesome i want to do a podcast we knew we wouldn't Want to do it and wouldn't be able to do it alone. So that we needed another perspective, needed another set of shoulders to, to carry the load. And within a week, I think Lily, we you were on board because you were, yeah. um, I don't know. I mean, we were fortunate to, that you just you just said yes. I remember saying to Perry, I mean, we can just ask. We'll see what she says. <laughs> um, we had a trial run. We, we, I think, like within another week or so, we had um, Connor, our producer, on board um we recorded our trial run episode on october 28 that has never been released although it was a good it was a good discussion there was nothing to hide there but we we didn't release it and then the first episode um we recorded that the first week of november exactly 4 weeks after the idea of doing a podcast was first <laughs> was first um uh, uttered um so it was a tight a tight schedule perry why why did you say we should do a podcast
2: Um, okay. So let me, let me backtrack this a little bit to say, um, I met Lily, um, probably in like 2017, 2018. Um, I was writing a lot about polarization, political divides, and she had this great book on civil, uh, is it uncivil agreement? Uncivil disagreement.
1: Uncivil agreement.
2: Uncivil Um, agreement. So I was with 530 at that point looking for sort of a, You know the country's divided but looking for like smart ways to write about that and smart ideas and her book was um was very was very was was very up to that and and helped me sort of understand unpacking so i wrote about her book and then i think we met in person because a mutual friend of ours named lee drutman who's at uh who's at the think tank new america was doing a he was doing a book on the sort of polarization themes as well and he invited us both separately to come in and like talk about his book and to kind of toss out ideas and should he revise certain sections and so on. So that's 2018, and um, so I've known Lily for a little while. And then I think, kind of uh, late 2020, I began to think that while polarization is an important subject, something was off about it. I'm I'm in the group that. It, the polarization theme almost implies that if you vote for the same party all the time, something is wrong with you. And I'm in the group that, you know, black people who vote for the same party all the time. I don't think anything wrong with us. And so I, in, particularly in the Trump era, so I kept being like this polarization thing. I get parts of it and parts of it feel like we're describing two sides that are not equivalent with the same term. It's implying Democrats or Republicans are equally bad. And I don't think maybe with George versus John Kerry, that was true. I don't think with Trump and Biden, that's true. And I was on Twitter and I sort of I think I had sort of bumped into uh, this German historian who was like uh, tweeting a bunch about how polarization was the wrong frame to think about American politics. And he was critiquing some literature he had read about polarization. And I think that's how I ended up talking to Thomas. And I reached out to him on Twitter and I said, let's have a phone call about this and. And that's sort of, that was like late 2020. We sort of were untouched touch about that. I sort of started doing this new job at the Washington Post around the same early 2021, which gave me some more freedom to sort of express the ideas that the polarization theme is wrong. And here's how, and to sort of get into the fact that the problem is the Republican Party right now, which is where sort of Thomas already was. And he helped me sort of understand and unpack it a little more.
1: Yeah. And I'll just say Perry, Perry emailed me about this, uh, during a time when I was having a lot of conversations with my colleagues about these sort of, this sort of similar thing around the term polarization. And it's, is that really what we mean? And do we actually want to use that term? And doesn't it imply something that's not really true? Doesn't it imply this kind of bipolar, um, nature of, of the problem? And maybe we should be using different terminology and, and maybe really what we should be focusing on is, is, you know, threats to a, Pluralistic democracy. What do we think democracy should be? What's is you know maybe we should take a normative stance. Does what's normatively good? What do we want our our government to look like, and how do we talk about that as political scientists? Um, so I was having all of these questions at the same time that that Perry emailed me, and it was sort of with this like kind of relatively small group of scholars that none of us were like all that comfortable of uh, you know knowing how to address this. Uh, and I also had been doing a bunch of podcast interviews. I was the person being interviewed on a bunch of podcasts at the time. So I, I didn't feel very, I didn't feel like it was too big a lift. I didn't feel like I wasn't too uncomfortable with the idea. Um, and, uh, and then we just decided to try it out and it worked and it worked well. So here we are. I think
0: what we all shared probably was this sort of slight frustration maybe with how the, um, the political debate was framed. In, it, it, certainly, in the the mainstream debate around American politics was framed, and how the the big picture analysis did not center on democracy, threats to democracy, or if it did, in in a very like sort of you know vague kind of generic kind of way. I mean, yeah, we're all pro democracy, whatever. I, I think what what we all kind of. What we're trying to do here is to that that's what the, what what the whole big picture approach is all about. We we try to maybe offer a slightly different framework, a slightly different perspective, a slightly different uh, point of view from from which to to look at American politics and um and, and of so the conflicts that shape this country. Um, I, I had read Lily's book when it came out. Um, because I'm also working on a sort of history of of the polarization idea. Um, and I've always thought. Since 2018, basically, here's someone who gets it right, who gets sort of the the big picture as well as the empirical evidence, has the empirical evidence to back it up. And I I remember, in the summer of 2021, I think you were on Ezra Klein's podcast, not for the first time, at least for the second time. Um, but I think that that is still what I think of as sort of the best, most concise dissection of the political situation. So I felt very comfortable with the idea. That you would be able to handle like podcasts, like the medium that would you 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 know well. You, you and I were both academics. Yes. I think it's fair to say that we know people in the academic world who might be fantastic scholars, but maybe not necessarily suited to this kind of medium, right? M- yes. Maybe because they don't want to do it, or they don't. They maybe not, maybe can't. Um, yeah, and then I I I, I similar, similarly um I, the first time I heard. Perry's speak was actually before we actually talked to each other Perry was on the I think I told you this on you were a guest on um uh an NBA podcast I love you were there to talk about I think hiring practices
2: in this is the previous era iteration of the NFL doesn't hire any black coaches and I had written a piece saying here's why the NBA is better on that and and he wanted to talk about that
0: yes so so interestingly I mean I I heard both of you speak and, and on podcasts before we we ever talk to each other but yeah I mean again I, I think um it was quite stressful to 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 bring this all together right before the midterms but we had this idea look if if we if we're going to start doing this we we should try to put the first episode out before the midterms that was a, a fixation i guess we had and we did and now we're doing it and now I, like honestly it it is it is a lot of work but it's it's fun and I'm not I'm not entirely sure what the um where this is supposed to go. In an ideal world we'll keep doing it until democracy is safe and, and all is all is good. If that is the case, we'll be here for a while, I guess.
2: Jonas from Germany, he asks My question is about the connection of fascism and economy. What influence does socioeconomic uncertainty have on the spread of fascist ideology? I know Thomas sometimes talks about the concept of white innocence and that explaining racism by the economy is too simple, or at least that's what I thought he said. But is there any connection between fasc- the fascists, both the fascism and the economy? Even though he mentioned Thomas, I want to start with Lily with this question.
1: So this argument of economic anxiety essentially said Trump was attracting white working class voters because they were feeling economically disadvantaged and left behind in rural areas. And those were the people who were overwhelmingly switching um, from uh, voting either not voting or voting for, for Democrats over to voting for Trump. That claim has been pretty well uh, examined by political scientists in recent years. There is not a lot of support for it. So, well, let me let, let me just say, first of all, this is probably a topic we could spend an entire episode on. Um, so I'm just going to do three main points. The first one is uh, uncertainty in general is, from the psychology perspective, can create extremism. that can generate extremism. And people who feel uncertain about their their status or their place in the world often join extremist groups because those groups have very concrete boundaries around them. And that can feel very comforting to somebody who's feeling like the boundaries around them are fuzzy and unclear, and they're not sure where they're supposed to go or where they belong. So this is true with you know, terrorist groups. This is true with cults. This is true with any kind of extremist groups where their, their, uh, their boundaries are very comforting to someone who feels uncertain in general. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that there's very little evidence that the people who were really drawn to Trump in 2016 were people who were economically disadvantaged. So, uh, Dieta Mutz wrote an article. She's a political scientist. uh, focuses on political communication. She wrote an article uh, basically showing that the 2016 approval of Trump was actually much more strongly correlated with anxiety about Um, status among high status groups. So among people who had status already and them feeling like maybe their status was being challenged, that was much more correlated with Trump support than income or um, economic instability. Brian Schaffner and colleagues did a paper finding that while there's some weak connection between um, economic instability and Trump support, the much, much stronger connection is between racist attitudes and sexist attitudes. And actually, if you if uh, the the sort of educational polarization, educational divide disappears completely, if you give people like if college educated and non-college educated people had the same racial attitudes, there would not be an educational divide. So um, that that's another study that sort of tends to show that this, this is about attitudes about equality. And then finally, Gallup did a poll um, looking at at this uh, with a huge survey of American adults over, I think, 125,000 people. What they found was that um, high household incomes are are no more or less likely to be supporting Trump, Um, but people who lived in racially isolated communities in which there were worse health outcomes, lower social mobility, and less social capital across everyone, the people who were the wealthiest people in those those disadvantaged places were much more likely to support Trump. So it seems like it was the best-off people in the worst-off places, basically meaning that they felt like their status, they had real status, but it felt Perhaps insecure, but also it felt like they really wanted to keep it because they were seeing all these people around them that didn't have it, and that made them guard it even more jealously and willing to perhaps even sacrifice their commitment to democracy in order to keep it. So basically, long story short, yes, economic uncertainty can drive people towards extremism, but it does seem like with Trump in particular and the MAGA movement right now, it is not the poorest people who like that movement. It is the it is the wealthiest people in the poorest places who hold a lot of anxiety about their own social status, not about their economic status, who are drawn to that movement.
0: I mean, I think this is so absolutely crucial. Um this is definitely something we we might want to devote like a full episode to at, at at some point i think it's really important how we frame the question if the question is really just does economic socioeconomic hardship uncertainty economic anxiety contribute to well then the answer is sure contribute i mean what does contribute mean right yes it's not it doesn't help right But the real question is, what is the relative importance of economic anxiety compared to other factors? And and should we make economic anxiety the center, the core of our explanation? Should we make it that from which we start our explanation of what's been happening in in America? Is it the key animating factor for what is happening on the right? For what fuels Trumpism? For for what fuels the radicalization of the right? And again, I mean, I mean, Lily, you 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 outlined it so clearly. This is not a matter of opinion or something where we'll just have to say, oh, we'll have to agree to disagree. There is like proper research on this. There's proper empirical research on this. And after 2016, I think initially the economic anxiety narrative won out in the sort of broader mainstream discourse versus a more sort of racial cultural anxiety argument. Um, but you know, it's been looked at a lot. and A very clear picture has emerged, and there is just not a good empirical basis for the economic anxiety narrative, for an explanation that centers economic anxiety as sort of the root cause of, of, of what's going on. Um, I think it's important to say, this does not mean that there is no economic hardship in America. It doesn't mean that people aren't struggling. Many, many people are. It also doesn't mean that we don't need a better, fairer social economic policy. We do. It just means that we cannot explain what's been happening. We cannot explain Trump's rise and what's been happening on the right by focusing on economic anxiety um I mean there's so much like again there's I think some of where the sort of the misunderstanding comes from is this this idea that uh, there's a lot of talk about the working class when really people mean white working class and it's not even really. White working class, it's non-college educated white voters, and really only white voters, many of whom actually had above average income. So it is true that Trump Trump's base is non-college educated white voters, but that is not the same as white working class. Most of the people who supported Trump in 2016, even amongst non-college educated white voters, had above average income in terms of household income. because again, education is the best proxy for racial attitudes, right? that's 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 what we're looking at here. Um And again, I think we we need to think of this as sort of not racial resentment, cultural resentment being downstream from economic anxiety. It's the other way around. It's sort of racialized economic anxiety being downstream from um racial and and cultural anxiety the the one other thing i want to say is the problem with the economic anxiety narrative and and the the eagerness with which it's often adopted in the mainstream discourse it reflects a tendency to sanitize the discourse by excluding race and racism and sexism and these cultural anxieties as the central organizing principles in american politics and whenever people rode waves of racial resentment to political prominence in the united states their success Uh, has been described in such terms of economic anxiety. Look at George Wallace, his surprisingly successful presidential run in 1968, or look at David Duke's near victory in the 1990 Senate election in Louisiana. I mean, seriously, look at what American major newspapers had to say when in 1990, David Duke, yes, that David Duke, almost won the louisiana senate election he got 43% of the vote 60% of the white vote and the next day it was all about oh my god there must be so much economic anxiety in louisiana that's that's a narrative that is it it's comforting for some people because it it keeps white innocence intact um That's why I think the discourse tends to default to this narrative. It portrays white Americans as fundamentally decent and ultimately blameless for the outcomes they are pushing um, because they're only doing it because they're so economically anxious and left behind and whatever. So we can't blame them. We can't hold them responsible. We must presume benign motives and and we must get to these non-incriminating explanations. That's why that is so attractive, I think. But Again, it is not supported by the empirical evidence that we have.
2: So David Watson asks, those of us who value democracy should clearly object to gerrymandering. But some argue that Democrats must use gerrymandering so they can eventually pass federal legislation to ban gerrymandering or to pass other pro-democracy legislation. Is gerrymandering always bad? I'll start with Lily.
1: This is such a this is such a tough question. I mean, it's very similar to the like should Democrats play hardball? Democratic hardball, you know, sort of as viciously as Republicans do. Um so, you know, short quick answer to this question is, you know, any any process it, in which the uh, electoral outcomes are being manipulated by the people who are being placed into those seats, so effectively leaders choosing their voters rather than voters choosing their leaders is not consistent with uh with democracy as we think of it um the 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 general trend has been that gerrymandering has helped republicans over the last um 10 or 20 years and that seems to be continuing though possibly to a lesser degree now the, the there's this book uh, how democracies die by levitsky and ziblatt that that came out a, a few years ago one of the things that they said um as as sort of an ingredient of the death of democracies was the, the disappearance of this term they use called forbearance, which basically is the idea that people in a democracy, if, even if they're on opposing sides of something, won't use every single weapon in their arsenal to destroy the other side, um, even though they have those weapons available to them. And so uh, democracies are damaged when, uh, when both sides start using the kind of, you know, the nuclear weapons in the arsenal against each other that they were supposed to be, you know, threatening, but never really using. So to the extent that we have a Republican Party that is consistently using those nuclear weapons and, and you know, not engaging in any forbearance whatsoever, when fighting democrats and we have a democratic party that is trying to stick to these old norms of forbearance and not bringing out the nuclear weapons as much as humanly possible because it does because they have this understanding that that does destroy democracy we're stuck in a catch 22 because we can't use the weapons right we can't democrats still have to engage in some version of forbearance or else our whole democracy is gone uh, but they also are therefore letting go of the rope in the tug of war to to uh, you know to some degree So it's not, it's not exactly a question that can be answered cleanly. I mean, there is a concrete answer, which is nobody should be doing gerrymandering. The the question of outcomes is a different question and, and that's a lot harder for us to put our finger on when we're talking about something as complex as democracy.
0: I mean, I think the answer to is gerrymandering always bad is yes, but it doesn't mean there aren't some complicated issues here. Right. I mean. When Republicans escalate the gerrymandering while Democrats simultaneously disarm by getting away from it, that exacerbates the imbalance that favors the anti-democratic forces. And that is, again, like just like you said, Lily, in terms of what is the result of that, that's a problem. That's not an argument for gerrymandering, but it is an argument for seriously thinking through how the pro-democracy camp can and should fight this fight. And that's where I think the as as on board as I am with the general emphasis on forbearance, sort of the, so the, the, the Levitsky Ziblatt argument in, in *How Democracies Die*, there is a vast. There's a lot of space between, like using all weapons at your disposal, including nuclear nuclear war, what the Republicans are doing, or like. Not using any of your weapons because you're pretending to still not be in a different fight than what you used to be in, and like, so it's a sliding scale. It's a not a yes or no answer, right? The, 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 should should Democrats play hardball? Yes, they have to. Not not to the extent that Republicans do. They have to find it's it's a balancing act, and it's it's difficult. Um, Republicans clearly have decided there's nothing they won't do. Um, it's not just Trump, right? I mean, the, the example everyone always brings up, and rightfully so, is Mitch McConnell in 2016 just saying, nope, we're not ever here. The case for Obama's Supreme Court nominee after the death of Antonin Scalia. We'll just keep this open for a year. Thank you. And then hopefully we'll win the election. And when they did, they they got their Supreme Court justice. Again, we just need an honest conversation about this. It's What is not good enough, I think, is is just to say, uh, you know doesn't matter what republicans are doing we have to respect the norms and 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 hold up trust in the institutions that sounds fantastic in a vacuum but when one side has long abandoned the norms and worse is now weaponizing the norms against the democracy or is weaponizing the fact that the pro democracy camp is still clinging to the norms then closing your eyes and and, and and hoping that clinging to the norms is enough that's probably not good enough um and those institutions we're supposed to trust i mean again some of them are actually at the forefront of the reactionary assault on democracy i'm looking at you supreme court um so again it, it what we need it, it is a really difficult balancing act between um again no one is saying i think no one no one with any influence on you know democratic politics is 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 seriously saying we should just do what republicans are doing and go all in like go nuclear whatever um but also, we can't just, we, I say we, the Democratic Party and those who are interested in, in, in preserving American democracy, we can't just sit there and, and, and pretend the, the, the fight hasn't changed and the rules of engagement haven't changed. They have changed. And so you need to find some sort of commensurate answer to that.
2: So next question for somebody who did not want us to use their name. I'd love for you to, to, to hear you all talk about the rise in anti-democratic right-wing authoritarianism around the world. So much of your analysis has been about the roots of American anti-democracy. What accounts for this in Israel, France, Italy, and of course Hungary and elsewhere throughout Eastern Europe? Thomas. I mean, this is definitely another one where... At some point,
0: we might want to just devote a proper, like, long segment to this. So it is striking. There are right-wing reactionary movements and parties everywhere that are very much focused on the U.S. situation, very closely paying attention to what's happening in the U.S. on, on the struggle over democracy in the U.S. And conversely, American conservatives are in love with foreign autocrats and their attempts to keep multiracialism, uh, multiracial pluralism, uh, at bay. They very openly admire Viktor Orbán in Hungary, first and foremost, probably. Um, they still can't quite quit Vladimir Putin. Um, I want to say right away: I'd be careful with sweeping generalizations about what exactly these connections between right-wing extremists um, and reactionaries, what they are, and what what effect they are having. Um, I think that's something to be actually examined, case by case. Sometimes. You know, people are people are just using the term like global fascism, or or any such labels, and and you know, as long as as long as you're not telling me what what the actual diagnosis behind the label is, that's that's just what it is—a label. After you know the, um, the 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 storm on the the, the Brazilian uh, was it the Supreme Court or the Parliament uh, a few weeks back. Um, There was all this talk about, oh, Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, they they met with uh, uh, the Bolsonaro people and whatever. And all of a sudden there was this narrative about these fascist masterminds pulling the strings everywhere. I'm a little skeptical uh, about this kind of stuff. Again, I don't care about the label. If you want to call it global fascism, go ahead. I don't care. Either way, it doesn't replace the actual work of looking what's going on here. And what is going on is that across the quote-unquote West, at least, and beyond the West, but I'm I'm more comfortable talking about quote unquote West. Reactionaries look to these autocrats and and they seek alliances and they seek their proximity. None of the conservatives or right-wingers in in any of Western country care much about the actual situation in Hungary or Russia. What matters to them is an imagined Russia, an imagined Hungary. They imagine these places as strongholds of white patriarchal Christianity. They imagine them as nations of and for white Christians where men still get to be real men, and they love how aut- autocrats like Orban glorify their nation's past and, and forcefully push back against those cunning, quote unquote, globalists. So to-, to reactionaries all across the West, the imagined version of Russia or Hungary specifically, uh, has become th- those have become models of how to organize society and deal with the real, quote unquote, leftist enemy. And I think that is also what's behind the reactionary admiration for Israel. It sits somewhat uncomfortably and in tension with the pervasive anti-Semitism of these movements and parties, but it makes sense if we understand that they see Israel as as sort of an ethno-nationalist, ethno-religious nation, and that is close to the vision they all have for their own countries. Um, So again, I think that transnational right-wing admiration for people like Orban is, is a reminder that the struggle over democracy and multiracial pluralism is not just playing out in the U.S., And the the reactionary counter-mobilization is an international phenomenon. There are many specific elements and factors depending on what country we look at. It's not all the same. But I think ultimately, I do think we are seeing versions of different iterations of the same overarching struggle playing out. Um, Because as all of these societies have become more diverse, more pluralistic, or at least everyone is expecting that to happen in the near future... The question is, will it be possible to establish a stable egalitarian democracy under such conditions? Or from the perspective of the right, can they prevent this from ever happening? I think that is the overarching questions that is that is playing out everywhere. And that I think the, the right in all these countries has a pretty strong understanding that the 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 struggle and the enemies are ultimately the same, regardless of its if it's Orban in Hungary, or if it's like I don't know uh, France or ge- Germany or or Britain, um, the struggle is ultimately very similar, and the enemies are ultimately very similar. That's how I see sort of the, the bigger picture of, of what 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 you know what the sort of the overarching uh, conflict is. So that's also why, conversely, right wing movements across the world have been obsessed with Trump. They rejoiced in 2016 because they saw his election as proof that multiracial pluralistic democracy would never work, that the forces of reaction would ultimately prevail. Trump, in in their interpretation, was seen as evidence that any attempt to install multiracial pluralistic democracy would spark a backlash strong enough to defeat the, you know, the nefarious forces of liberalism. Trump was supposed to stem the tide. So in a way the escalating obsession with foreign autocrats like Orban might be seen as a reaction to Trump's failure to make good on that promise or that expectation. Um, if not Trump, then who? Reactionaries are looking elsewhere, therefore, and they they believe that you know, someone like Orban is showing the way forward. And, and the final thing I'll say on this, the right understands very clearly, and again, across the West, I'm not just talking about the American right, the right across the West and beyond, but again, I'm the West is, quote unquote, West is, is, is what I feel sort of comfortable talking about because I, I'm studying that. Um, the right understands very clearly the world historic implications of this current struggle. An egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy, such a political, social, cultural order has never existed really. There have been several stable and, and maybe even fairly liberal democracies. But either they um, they were culturally and ethnically homogeneous to begin with, you can think maybe Scandinavia, Sweden or something, or um, there has always been a pretty clearly defined uh, group that's in charge, that's at the top, um, a white man's democracy or racial case democracy, like in the American case, where you have um, conditions of multiracial pluralism. But, you know, it's not reflected in a sort of egalitarian democracy. It It, it is a, a system in which uh, white people, white men specifically, are very much at the top. But a truly multiracial pluralistic democracy in which an individual status was not determined, to a significant degree at least, by race, gender, religion, or wealth, I don't think that's ever been achieved anywhere. And and that is sort of the the bigger struggle everywhere, because it, that is a vision that reactionaries, they they find terrifying. And to them, that would be the end of quote-unquote Western civilization or whatever term they, they like to use. And so they are determined to fight back by whatever means necessary um, and, uh, to prevent this from, from ever becoming
2: reality. So Marjorie from Atlanta and Ted from Dallas had somewhat similar questions. I'm going to read both of them and then we're going to discuss them as a pair. So Marjorie um, asked, how do you talk to someone in your life who seems to share your basic beliefs and values but just isn't engaged? To give a concrete example, what would you say to a young adult who either ca- who casually tells you they're not going to vote in an upcoming election because they're either A, too busy, or B, convinced it's all hopeless and their vote won't matter anyway? Ted past I'm very says I'm very pessimistic about our future both globally and for the purposes of your podcast nationally. Republicans are obstructions with their focus on culture wars um, And as Thomas has stated numerous times every time we get to a potential turning point with them, January 6 for example, they always choose to go more extreme as opposed to moderating. This person, Ted, is listening. Ted is listening to the podcast very carefully. Thank you, Ted. So convince me why I shouldn't stop paying attention to national political news altogether. I'll continue to vote Democratic until the other side can moderate, so I'll do my part. But as one man, a country of nearly 330 million, in which there exists an incredibly powerful right-wing media machine that continues to poison the minds of countless millions, What's the point of paying attention? Dark questions. What's the point of voting and what's the point of paying attention? Okay. I'll start with Lily.
1: Yeah, those are tough. I mean, I I think that ideally what we want, our end goal here, right, is not to make everyone feel despondent and uh, demoralized and demobilized, right? The 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 electorate that we that that would save democracy is one that feels courageous and empowered and um knowledgeable and uh, and and has has a clear direction to to move in that's that's far away it's something that we can you know we we should be working on when we talk to young people when we talk to any, any average person um but but a couple of things i'll say that could be useful tools. Um, One is, uh, there's a new book called The Other Divide by Kripnikoff and Ryan that that basically looks at the difference between people who are paying attention and involved in politics versus people who are not paying attention and are not involved in politics in the United States. And rather than looking at Democrats versus Republicans, it's called The Other Divide because it's saying it's either people who participate or they don't. That's actually a huge rift in uh, in the American electorate. And one of the most disappointing things that they find is that people who do not pay attention to or are involved in politics have different preferences than people who are involved in politics and are paying attention. What that means is that the preferences of the people who are not involved are never going to be addressed because they, not only do they have different preference needs and preferences, but they are not doing anything about them. So to the extent that a person might feel like they're they're not, you know, the things that they do don't get them anywhere or that their needs are never met and no one ever talks about them. No one is going to talk about them until you get involved, right? So this is one of the challenges of democracy it can be very disheartening for a very long time before you actually get some, some success or, or some engagement from people who are in charge. But there's 0% chance that you get success or engagement if you never ever do anything at all. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing um, is that the, you know, the way that we, the way that democracy works is that we, you know, we are supposed to participate in the process and accept the outcome, right? So we are not always going to be happy with an outcome that that we get. The idea of democracy is that we go into our decision making, hoping for a certain outcome, being fine if we don't get that outcome because we'll fight for it next time, not deciding I'm just gonna take my ball and go home and the and that principle can be really frustrating that principle of democracy can be really frustrating but as we saw with donald trump's you know refusal to accept the 2020 election um we have to do that that's the key element that's a really important part of participating in a democracy is getting disappointed and feeling frustrated and and still going now I will also say to Ted in particular that you don't have to pay attention to national politics all the time. It is not that, you know, it's not like the most crucial thing in the world. In fact, you should be paying a lot more attention to local politics because that's where you have a much bigger, a much bigger, your vote matters a lot more. You have a lot more power on a local level. You can change your local politics in a way that you, in, as an individual, likely won't change national politics. And local politics tend to be, to the extent that they're less connected to national politics, it's actually possible to get people out of their partisan um uh, sort of the, out of their partisan sides but so so yes you should be paying more attention to to local politics than national politics people who are playing the playing with national politics are playing a game where they're they're looking to to signal Things that aren't necessarily what they actually want or that would help Americans as a whole. So you don't have to pay attention to national politics all the time. Just remember that if you stop participating, you are no longer you have you officially have zero power. And if you get frustrated, that's okay because that's part of the process. And that's that's one of the required elements of any good democracy. Any functional democracy is that we have a bunch of people who are mad after every election and they keep going.
2: Just to be clear, Ted, you cannot read the Washington Post articles daily, but you need to keep your subscription. <laughs> um, and on that note, Thomas, does that get us any kind
0: of I don't know endorsement slash funding from the Washington Post if we if we start doing that? Because if so, whatever. Like, go ahead. Um, okay, so I very much understand many of the frustrations, particularly frustrations that are maybe particularly prevalent among younger people, people who, I mean, Lily and I, because of our day jobs, we we are in contact with all the time. We teach young people in their late teens, early 20s, basically, early to mid 20s. And, you know, I I get many of those frustrations. Politics, the political system has not been good to young people. Um, I don't know if you saw this, I don't know, was that last week or the week before? There was a big, sort of a big, some, some kind of study or survey that, that basically the the results basically, the result basically was that millennials are the first generation ever on record. Basically that is not becoming more conservative as they age. Um, so millennials, I think is defined as anyone born like between 1982 ish, late early eighties to like late nineties, something or so. So I, I think I'm technically a millennial because I, I was born in 1982. Anyway. Um, very old millennial, I should say. Um, also, very old feeling millennial, and then and people were like, "Oh my god, like what's happening with millennials? Like why why are they not following that trajectory that the older people get? They tend to become maybe a little more conservative." And the answer is very simple: like people become more conservative as they age. Not all people, but but you know, statistically, because well, as you as you accumulate wealth and status in society. You become more interested in upholding that status. You become more interested in upholding the status quo in, in, in sort of hierarchy maintenance. You have more to lose. You don't like something like a wealth tax, maybe, maybe once you have accumulated wealth. Millennials don't do any of that. They don't accumulate wealth. They, they're they not rising in, in society, so they're just not that interested in the status quo in in, in sort of that political project of, of maintaining uh, the status quo and, and sort of existing hierarchies. So it's not it's not rising rocket science, I don't think, to So start to explain this. Um, it is a political system that has, for quite some time now, very much reflected, overemphasized, and privileged the interests and sensibilities of older people, older white people. That's frustrating. I totally get that. The point where I'm always trying to really push back and push back forcefully is when the frustration gets to the point where people say, wow, I'm frustrated with it all. It's all the same anyway. Like, there are no, it makes no difference. Who cares who's in charge? Like, who cares the parties? And it's all the same. Who cares? who cares? Who cares? Who cares who's in charge here or there? Okay. It's not all the same. I mean, look at the most vulnerable, marginalized, discriminated against groups in America. They very much seem to think there is a big difference. People of color, black people especially, have been voting overwhelmingly for Democrats since at least the 1960s, are they just too naive to see that both parties are the same and that nothing matters and that it doesn't matter who's in charge? Would you want to go up to like black women and tell them, oh, don't you see it's all the same? What would you think they would tell you in response? Um, or look at like trans people, under assault um, their, their fundamental rights and liberties taken away, that's only coming from the right, would you want to tell them to their face, ah, it makes no difference, all the parties are the same, doesn't matter who's in charge? No, of course not, right? Because it matters who's in charge. So again, if apparently those who are threatened most acutely by the political situation evidently do not think that it's all just the same and that it doesn't matter and that both parties are the same and it, it doesn't matter who's in charge, well then... That should give everyone pause who is maybe out of frustration or out of ignorance or out of whatever, getting to the point where they see as everything just the same. And it doesn't matter because it does matter. That does not mean we all have to become big fans of Joe Biden or the Democratic establishment or any sort of super old senator. That does not, is, that's not what that means. But it means there is a responsibility, I think, especially for those among us who are not part of those most vulnerable groups um, to, you know, not give in to those kind of lazy, kind of privileged position where you sit there and say, it's all the same to me. It's all the same to me is a position that you can only take when your rights and your fundamental liberties are not under acute threat.
2: So our final question is it's another question from Alex. We just liked her questions, um, so we went with two of them. And the second question is: She's reading the book um, "Myth America," and "Myth America" is a book um, written by, published earlier this year, written by the, the historians Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer. Yeah, they're the editors of the book. Yeah, yeah. Right, you're right. right, yeah, right. They're yeah, the yeah. editors of the book. I'm glad you said that. And so the, the, um, the book is actually, this Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. And it's a and it's actually a bunch of essays from historians who take on different myths and so on in American history and legends, as, a, as, the, as the title indicates, and, and sort of critique them and debunk them and so on. So... Um, Alex asked, kind of, what are some of the, um, if you could dispel a myth of, that would make the most positive impact on the country, which myth would you dispel? And so you can, you guys can take a myth, myth that's mentioned in the book or a myth outside of the book, but I'd be curious to know which um, myths you think we should dispel. I'll start with you, Thomas.
0: I think we're, we're going to try to do one each. We have not told each other which one we have chosen. So so let's see where, where this is going. Well, I'm going to go with a myth um, about US history, unsurprisingly, that I I, I still think is, is quite pervasive. And that is the idea that America is looking back at a supposedly glorious 250-year history of, sort of stable, consolidated democracy, a myth about when and what American democracy has been beyond the fact that it's just not empirically, analytically accurate to think of American democracy that way, you know, uh, 1776, boom, democracy, awesome. Um, there are several problems with that view of US history. Usually, this idea of America having this of 250-year history, being an old, consolidated democracy, comes with the assumption that the democracy in this country is immensely resilient, more so than elsewhere and that it is basically immune to authoritarianism. It's quite often the assumption behind this it-cannot-happen-here attitude that is still prevalent on the center and among liberals. But the political system that was stable and consolidated for most of US history was a white man's democracy, or a racial case democracy, or whatever you want to call it, a restricted form of democracy that deliberately, le- deliberately left a specific political, social, economic order largely intact. There's nothing old, stable, or consolidated about multiracial, pluralistic democracy in America. It only started less than 60 years ago. And the conflict over whether or not it should be allowed to endure and, and prosper has dominated American politics and society ever since. The second problem with this myth, if we start from the assumption that America has been a stable, consolidated democracy for two and a half centuries, the current political conflict must seem utterly baffling. I mean, where is all the anti-democratic radicalization of the Republican Party and of so many million people? Where, where is that all of a sudden coming from? If, if I mean, I, I just don't find it very plausible to assume that the people who remain united behind Trump or versions of Trumpism and are now openly embracing authoritarianism were fully on board with liberal democracy until recently before they were driven... To the right by what? By the presidency of a moderately liberal politician whose sole quote-unquote radicalism consisted of being black? Or by the election of a deeply religious elderly white man who has always been a proud centrist? Is that what pushed them to finally abandon their supposedly consolidated democratic convictions? I don't find any of that plausible. We should start by acknowledging you know, what democracy has meant in America before the civil rights legislation, and that since the 1960s, the struggle over whether or not American democracy should finally become that which it had often promised to be a system in which all people were truly created equal, regardless of race, gender, religion, or wealth. That question has defined the political conflict. There was never any consensus over this. It's always been extremely contentious. That should be the starting point. Don't listen to people who, for whatever reason, still cling to such ideas of this mythical past of democratic democratic glory that just never existed.
2: Lily,
1: are we going to talk about it? Are we? Are we just going to? No, no, we're, we're going to
2: each give our his, our myth. I mean, but, you uh, yeah. if, if if you if, I mean say whatever you whatever <laughs> you think about. This, I mean, I, I did, now you disagree with that one very much, but, anyway, but I guess I, I was hoping. No, I do Yeah, yet. I agree. So, with what's that. your myth? <laughs> uh,
1: so um, I so I was going to do the myth that's that's like the folk theory of democracy that that assumes that all all citizens are motivated by their economic well being. Um, which is, which is like a myth that most pundits and political experts hold, and it is extremely frustrating, but I feel like I talk about it all the time. And, uh, and as Thomas was speaking, another one occurred to me that maybe is not perfectly thought out, but it is something that I've, that I think if we were to address it, it might help a lot in American society. So I'm going to go, um. I'm going to go off. Uh, the This one is, and people are probably going to get mad at me, uh, that the idea that traditionally marginalized groups can be racist or sexist or somehow prejudiced against the groups who have oppressed them historically is absolute bonkers. I, 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 This is, I think, at the root of a huge amount of right-wing radicalism and um, pearl clutching and garment rending, right? The idea that women are sexist against men, that black people are are racist against white people, um, that they're coming for our traditional social values. Uh, Prejudice is deeply rooted in systems. Prejudice is not an individual level trait. I mean, it can be. But that's not the kind that harms entire democracies and entire countries. The type of prejudice that harms entire countries is the type that is systemically rooted, that has existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that has become embedded in institutions and cultures and norms and practices and every single element of society such that a person in one group that has been uh, oppressed walks down the street in a different way than a person who is in the group that has traditionally been the oppressor the understanding that a, sing- a single person walking down the street lives their life in a very different way. The people around them on the sidewalk look at them differently. They talk to them differently. They, they give them a uh, benefit of the doubt differently. They judge them. They consider their motives differently. Um, the idea that prejudice can be this thing that you know, traditionally marginalized groups can unfairly hold against the traditionally high status groups is wrong. It's simply wrong. Uh, it doesn't explain anything in our society. It doesn't help us make equality more likely. And the fact that when when these traditionally marginalized groups make any sort of social progress, that that feels like an affront to traditionally high status groups, uh, that tells us that there are still structural problems. The fact that these people are even asking for rights tells us that, and that and that that hurts the feelings of dominant groups. That tells us that those inequalities still exist. So if I could change one thing in American society right now it would be to say it is not sexism when a woman asks a man for some respect. It is not racism when black people ask white people to treat them more fairly. That is not the right word. You can use a different word maybe or maybe we need different terminology all around. But if I could change one thing, that's, that's what I would change.
2: So my myth is related to what Lily just said in that, um, so one of the essays in this book, Myth America, is written by a historian named Lawrence Glickman, who teaches at uh, Cornell University. And he argues essentially that we have this phrase that we use, particularly when black civil rights movements in the 60s and so on, when they advance, we say that inevitably the protest, civil rights activism led to a backlash. And it's sort of, and, and he argues in the essay, and he's argued a lot, some of this probably too, is that backlash assumes this kind of this inevitable response, that it, it had to happen this way. And in reality, if you looked at the 2020 George Floyd protest, it wasn't obvious that the next thing should be banning ap classes in florida about black history he argues that it's not a the backlash implies kind of like a um kind of takes the agency away from the backlashers and sort of says that the 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 civil rights people the, the activists the black people went too far and therefore there was an inevitable backlash in reality glickman argues and i think correctly that People decided to do a backlash. Like the reactionaries are acting. You know, they there was no reason to find every suggest critical race theory is taught in every high school and then decide to go to, decide to go ban it. They said that they they were active people on the right doing that. I think that's an important essay. And I know I read um, Carlos Lozada, one of my old colleagues at the Post, who's now at the New York Times, wrote an essay in, in the Times, which he said he reviewed the book Myth America and said. I'm going to stop referring to this backlash idea. And I, and I, and I have felt the same way. It's like we, Thomas has been a while talking about the idea that there's a counter mobilization. But I think Glickman's piece in this book really gets at that idea that we've got to stop thinking about, you know, inevitably anytime gay, LGBT people, women, black people do something that there has to be a backlash. No, people are choosing to act unfavorably to them when they make their demands that Lily was discussing. I and mean, we we t- we talk about this explicitly on the podcast a few weeks back, right? where we we
0: we push back against of the backlash term. and i I think I said it at the time, and I'll say it again, my thinking around this and my my um my thinking around sort of not t- being very careful with the backlash terminology and and trying to find different terminology. That is very much influenced by Larry Glickman's uh, research. He's he's writing a book on sort of white backlash politics. I think so. So look out for that. He's great, and everything he writes is great. Um, I'm, you know what? i Lily. When you were when you were talking, I was thinking there's just no way that um, the way what you described is is received is by our listeners is entirely dependent on whether or not they are listening in good faith. If you're listening in good faith, what you said makes total sense. If you're listening in bad faith,
1: you're mad right now. (laughs) the,
0: The takeaway is, the takeaway is, she said, "Like, like, uh, it, it is not possible for black people to not like white people." Which is the dumbest. That's the, the dumbest possible. Like, how dare this woman? Right? She's like, "Like, what nonsense!" is this? I know a lot of black people who don't like white people. Yeah, no, that it's it's true. That exists. That may exist. Like, black people who are like not particularly fond of white people. That might exist, right? You were talking about something entirely different, but I was thinking, just just no. But you know what? Like, you can't. I
1: but that, t- no, what I'm saying, I'm not so let me clarify. Yeah. What I'm saying is that's not racism. Yeah, I know, I know. Right? That's that is well-deserved fear and caution around a group of people who have mistreated people who look like you for centuries. That's not racism. That's that's appropriate caution, right? That's that's like if some, you know, if you have an abuser who abused you every single day of your life and you say to someone, I don't trust that person and I don't like them. That's not you being prejudiced against them, right? That's you making a wise choice based on your experience.
0: I think it is, it is, um, it is important to acknowledge that there are, of course, tradition of traditions of black nationalism in the United States. And it's always been something that sort of conservatives, reactionaries have liked to do to just equate any form of black nationalism with just that's just anti-white racism, right? And play sort of the, the racism card against any form of black nationalism right um so again i'm just thinking i was just thinking there are two ways of doing a podcast like the one we're doing um, one way would be to never say anything that could potentially be taken like to offend or whatever and always think about oh my god like what reaction is this going to create the other way is just to say look if someone wants to be a bad faith uh, wants to just listen in bad faith and, and find reasons to not like what we're saying and say it's all just left-wing activism. That's just gonna happen. But you just have to make the case that you wanna make, right? Um
1: I just unilaterally you know, took us into the latter into the latter type now. Uh, well I you know the, I mean,
0: look we since since this is a QA and, and we, we kinda of, we started with kind of uh going behind the curtain a little bit maybe it's a nice nice way to end behind the curtain also we we, we've talked about trying to maybe find some institution or whatever that 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 might be interested in you know helping us with the podcast right um and there would be certain uh Uh, there will be certain benefits that that come with that. Uh, Believe it or not, it costs money to produce a podcast and we're not making any money from this podcast. But there is something to be appreciated about not being affiliated with any specific uh, institution, right? This is not a Washington Post podcast or it's not a whatever podcast. So we can say whatever we want to say, right? For now, there is no institution that tells us after the fact, after the episode, oh, uh, mm, I didn't quite like Ooh, that was so dicey territory. Whatever we we for now we can really say whatever we want to say, and that is the kind of it's a kind of freedom that I appreciate for now. I mean, again, there might be some sort of economic financial realities at some point. That um, at some point we will have to find a way to sort of at least you know it costs money to do this podcast, but um, for now it's it's nice to know that we can say this, and the worst that can happen is that someone's going to freak out on Twitter. Um, and maybe write uh, a mean article about us in New York Magazine. Who knows? Um, We'll see. Um, (laughs) All right. Do we have anything else we want to say, or is is, is, is that a good place to end? I think it's a good place to end. All right. Then that's our show for today. A few more housekeeping notes before we go. If you like the podcast, please subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. Leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. We are now very close to 100 ratings on iTunes, which is very good, I think, considering that we've only... Been doing this for a few weeks. I will not bore you all with uh, you know too much about sort of details of, of how it's become a lot more difficult to build an audience. But it's just the fact that since Musk took over Twitter and due to everything he's done to Twitter, the amount of engagement we can generate um, on Twitter and and so sort of through our own platforms that has just plummeted. It's 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 just not anywhere comparable to where it was a few months ago. So to the point where I think it's now no longer enough as a platform as a tool for amplifying a project such as this podcast so that means if you think what we're doing here is valuable if you think there might be people out there who could or should be interested in what we do you'll have to help us reach them Um, ratings and reviews help tremendously Uh, please help us spread the word tell the people in your life about the show we are releasing new episodes every every week usually on friday morning If you have any feedback, please email us at isthisdemocracypod at gmail.com. We want to thank our producer, Conda Lynch, who is making all this good stuff happen every week. And we want to thank you for sending in all these great questions, for engaging with the podcast, for listening, for joining us. And we will be back next week. Until then, bye-bye.